everybody, and welcome to the inaugural Market Performance Group podcast series. Uh, my name is Brian Gilbert, the founder and CEO of Confluencer Commerce, and a uh, and uh, delighted to be engaged in a uh, sort of a long term partnership with the Market Performance Group to uh, to help clients sort of uh, understand and uh, and take advantage of the changing sort of retail, media, and content landscape, and uh, as well as uh, do all the great work that Market Performance Group does with clients across the board. Um, we're going to be running a series of podcasts um, over the next uh, few months to take a look at uh, specific topics within the uh, within the industry that we think are particularly interesting. And today's topic is one of the conversations that uh, um, sort of dominating the airwaves, so to speak, which is the uh, the topic of retail media. And today's podcast will be called Retail Media from Promise to Practice. Uh, retail media networks, as everybody knows, are receiving enormous attention and energy right now. There's almost hundreds of them that are cropping up. There's a new one every day. Um, I'm reasonably sure that my, my kids are going to open a retail media network with a lemonade stand. Uh, we're very excited for DrivewayNet um, and all of its potential um, for one-to-one targeted precision marketing and all that. So um, there's a lot of opportunity, of course, but I think there's also a little bit of confusion and some frustration sometimes amongst the brands uh, who are trying to, uh, to use these things and who are largely responsible for paying for them, uh, trying to figure out how this is going to work. So, so I am delighted to be joined on this journey today by two of my favorite people, um, Andy Murray, the founder of BigQuest, and uh, Larissa Dannenberg, uh, Vice President at the Market Performance Group. Um, Andy, I'll let you uh, start with a little introduction on yourself and your retail media journey, and uh, Larissa, then we'll kick it to you, and then we'll dive right into the content. Well, thanks, Brian, for having me. Uh, hi, Larissa. How are you? Uh, it's a real pr- privilege for me to be part of uh, this conversation, one near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I've spent uh, half my career in CPG retail and the other half in the agency side servicing this space called shopper marketing. So I've seen it over the last 35-ish years evolve and develop um, on the retail side, SVP of marketing at Walmart from 2012 to 16. And then Across the pond as chief customer officer of Asda, one of Walmart's grocery uh, branches in the UK, uh, or recently was, uh, until that's been uh, sold. But uh, love the space from seeing it evolve and grow in different ways and uh, uh, excited to talk about it. Larissa, how about you? Thank you. Yes, nice to see you both and so happy to be with you, Andy and Brian. Larissa Dannenberg here. Um, spent the first 20 years of my career uh, building brands and doing marketing, which has been so fun. Uh, recently coming over from GSK Haleon, um, but started the beginning off at Kimberly Clark, Conagra Foods, so kind of through the traditional CPG world, if you will. Uh, and then five-ish years ago, decided to make the transition into digital commerce and what a whirlwind that has been. Um, and happy to be talking about me- retail media because that is the hot topic of the day. So looking forward to the next half hour here with both of you. Certainly. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get right let's get right into it. So uh, so look, um, Andy, I'll start with you. Um, we all know that ad dollars are moving from uh, digital and social into retail media. Um, you know, people are throwing numbers around like fifty billion, sixty billion. I always love it when people get super precise and put a decimal point in there and like somebody has any actual idea what this actually is. Um, I had a professor once who described that that from a projections point of view is the arrogance of the decimal point, one of my favorite quotes of all time from Professor Bill Bygrave. Um, but about, look, I mean, this will be close to $100 billion, at least by some measures, by 2026. Um, 
What do you see just overall from a numbers and a, just a size of market point of view? Um, do you think this trend's going to continue? Do you expect it to bottom out or plateau? Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on where this is going size-wise? Yeah, well, like you, Brian, I'm not sure anybody has a perfect crystal ball on this one. But so some of it's going to be informed from discussions anecdotally of talking to different, many different CPG and retailers about this space. But, you know, I generally feel like it's going to probably slow down a little bit, plateau uh, in uh, 2023, back half 2024, and then the opportunities for it to grow uh, will continue to to move, move upward. I, I don't dispute where I think those numbers could end up in 2026. It's very, very possible. I think the shape of that spend will evolve quite a bit from where we are today as new capabilities come online with connected TV and upper funnel kind of capabilities evolve. So we might find the actual um, distribution of that spend across who's getting that money and uh, what kind of tactics are engaging in that space uh, will might look quite a bit different than than what we see today. What I have seen is in 2023, if you look at from 2019 to today, uh, you know, that 30% year on year growth, uh, especially when that's coming from pretty much the top 30 CPG brands, we'll probably see a putting a foot on the ball moment as we get into 2023 in terms of budgets, because that is a sizable, sizable investment that's been uh, put on the table. And many CPGs are stepping back, looking at how do we ensure that that's a productive spend? And do we have the right non-working dollars going in the right space to make sure the working dollars that's being uh, invested is, is performing as at the peak levels that it should? Where's does that hang together for you? How does that, how does that sound? A hundred percent. I'm over here nodding uh, because this getting the attention, as you said, it's a bigger and bigger part of not just the ad spend, but the total commercial investment. And that's what brands are trying to now figure out. So it's not just that one line item on the P&L. And by the way, where that sits in the P&L is a whole different discussion, right? But folks are looking at the commercial investment right? Like, is it above the line? Is it below the line? And all of a sudden, there's a lot of zeros there. And those those percentages are growing, right? So it just be, it becomes a conversation of how do we best optimize the overall spend against the consumer? And this line item in particular, retail media is getting a tremendous amount of attention for the right reasons. Well, and I think too, the other, the other piece that I think is interesting, which I do think retail media is going to find hard to cycle next year, is it's coming out of a 12 to 18 month period of significant disruption in the performance marketing world. So ignoring commercial, the commercial side of the PNL for a minute and going back to basically what brands used to spend on things like Facebook and Instagram, which got pretty disrupted by the Apple ATT privacy changes in the last year or so. So a fair amount of money that was being deployed in the performance marketing space was less effective than it used to be. That money flowed back to digital budgets and then I think flowed into retail media. So I think some of this growth in retail media is a real thing about retail media. I think some of which is a temporary hiccup in the performance of some of the other forms of digital media that are available to somebody. That's going to plateau a little bit as Meta starts to figure out how to navigate this. And uh, I think at least gets its ROASs, if you would, its return on ad spends back to a more consistent level so that they're not declining anymore. And if your return on ad spend isn't declining, that'll have the effect of leveling the budget rather than having it drop. So I think there'll be more budget pressure on retail media networks to perform next year from a measurement point of view, uh, because I think the measurement, the, the, some of the other digital media pieces are going to get better. 
I also think, Brian, just to build on that, um, living through the UK side of uh, what's happened with data privacy, GDPR and those implications, we really haven't seen that hit the US in scale yet. And so that might be another place where we see a pickup in, you know, when you look at a, a, the cookie apocalypse that could be coming in 2024, you know, another hit that might uh, make retail media networks more compelling spend uh, that we haven't yet seen uh, hit. Yeah, the, the cookie the cookie apocalypse is quickly becoming to me the Y two K of twenty twenty four. No doubt, no doubt. <laughs> a problem that people talked about and talked about, spent a ton of money trying to fix. Consultants sold the fear of it for years, and it's going to. I I, I wonder. So uh, I'm sure it's coming. I don't get. I I don't I don't I don't I don't want to. Uh, I don't I don't want to break from marketing gospel, but uh, perhaps uh, so. Uh, if you would bet on it not happening, you'd be right so far. So, um, so um, but um, so um, so so I mean, retail media. I mean, and to the point we've all made here. Look, retail media is not new per se, and um, you know, I mean, you know, it's been a big deal in the UK for a long time. As basically, basically, retailers and brands fell into a symbiotic relationship where. Companies get so mad at the trade spend levels in the UK that the retailers figured out that if they called stuff brand spend, they'd get more money. So I don't know that anything was really, and not you, Andy, everybody else, clearly. But yeah, of course. But I, I, I don't know whether any there was any actual retail media happening in the UK, but it was certainly a big wine item on budget. But um, it's evolving a lot. But um, but Larissa, you were alluding to the size of it being important to clients, but. Uh, how how important is this, not just from a scale point of view, but from a strategy point of view to clients today? And uh, where do you see it? Where do you see the role of retail media? Is it awareness? Is it conversion? How are people thinking about this in the purchase journey? It's, it's an evolution. You know, and what we're seeing with our clients is everybody is in a different place, right? So you talked about before about shifting from kind of like performance marketing to retail media. Again, Nomenclature is important. People aren't even using the right words. So whenever we're talking to, you know, brand teams, sales teams, media teams, clients, first it's kind of like the level setting of like, what do you mean by X? What's the definition that you're using, right? Just to kind of make sure that we're all operating on the same fundamental understanding. Um, but the strategy of it, we always make sure to tie to what the brand is trying to accomplish, right? It is yet another tool in the marketing chest of stuff you can do. Right. So it's kind of like demystifying it, you know, for a long time, like everybody can kind of make a career out of like mystifying things and like making it seem like really sneaky. And, you know, only the certain elite people know how to use this stuff. But we're kind of trying to rip that cloak off and say, OK, this is just another way to reach the consumer. Oh, and by the way, through these RMNs, they have closed loop attribution. They have a ton of data that brands can use. You want to reach new consumers from your competitive set to do X, Y and Z using this messaging. There's a way to do it. So I think it's just a matter of education, kind of letting people know how to use it and then building it into the strategy, right? And I think that's kind of so far has been the biggest opportunity is making sure that we don't get lost in the, I don't know, like the alphabet soup of the KPIs, right? There's so many acronyms. There's so many different types of media yeah. metrics, but if you kind of bring it down to the brass tacks of we want to drive awareness, okay. Like you guys said, you know, a couple of minutes ago, there's some RMNs that are really good at upper funnel stuff. But if sales and conversion is what you're after for this particular campaign or for this brand objective, approach it this way. So we kind of try to bring it down to the basics of what what the brand objective is, what the business objective is. Yeah, I think um, there's a phrase I'll use sometimes with clients, it's, uh, which is uh, 
ROO or RUE, which is return on objective, right? And uh, because everybody gets so lost in all the all the jargony metrics and all the the specific data and all the things, and it's just like at some point it's like, um, you know, what is the um, you know what is our yeah you know, what is our return on objective? What are we actually trying to do? And then what does the return look like on that objective as we uh, as we uh, as as we roll as we roll forward? So um, so um, so so yeah, I think um, I think um, for either of you, but Andy, we can certainly kick to you. What do you think? Um, what do you think suppliers are going to need to do differently um, to start to realize some of the benefits from this uh, from this new and emerging space? Yeah, well, I think Larissa kind of hit on it. Uh, right now, I, I feel like there's a lot of suppliers have just jumped in and, you know, taken the posture of got a top down number. We need to we need to participate. Let's go. Uh, and then we'll figure it out as we get into it. Uh, and some of saying we don't want to play at all, which I think is a really scary spot to be in as this is not going to go away. Um, But what's been lacking, I feel, for many is having a real strategic approach and not understanding this is uh, this requires change well beyond just uh, a customer team being able to sort it out, you know, customer team by customer team and then somehow evolving to a company strategy. And so I think stepping back and saying, what are our objectives? What strate- how strategically do we want to approach this? Taking a market view, than just a customer by customer view and stepping back and looking at the work streams, like, cause you're going to be setting precedent and those precedents can be really deadly if you're not clear how that's going to play out for you across multiple customer teams when, you know, you see more of these come out. So stepping back and saying, do we have a real clear strategy on source of funding? You know, I, I was there in the beginning days of, of shopper marketing and there was a big saying, you know, let's not invest in shopper marketing because it's going to go into off invoice until then the invention of brand development funds that that ring fence that money. So it couldn't go into price per se. Uh, and some of those things still have to mature. So what is your strategy and source of funding? What is your strategy on how you're going to segment these opportunities, uh, assess those retailers? And you really do have to have a strategic approach to upskilling. Uh, this is not something that, you know, this requires laser surgery to get it right. If you treat this as a blunt instrument, you probably aren't going to get the returns uh, that you could get if you really had more of an end-to-end understanding of how this works and uh, and have that commercial and marketing uh, competencies built in across the organization in, in more profound ways. And so, and that includes the agency side, right? You can't, you know, just have a, uh, you know, bolt on a media planner that's been versed a bit in commercial and, and call it a day. You really have to understand, as Brian, you've said many times, this is a first word problem. You know, retail is a big part of this. This is just not this is not just a media exercise and you have to have that commercial understanding. So long story short, I think stepping back, saying, what is our strategy? And then having finance, supply chain logistics, marketing, commercial side, your media side, and your agency partners working together in a collaborative way to try to figure this out. And I'm I'm encouraged when I went to Shop Talk and saw, you know, companies bringing their full teams uh, or across multiple functions attending at the same time to get through this alphabet soup of vocabulary and definitions that Larissa talked about. Well, I think, too, my observation would be is that I actually think today, not to criticize, but I I'm not so sure that the brands haven't done more work to try to integrate this in the retailers, I have to be honest. Um, so I think the retailers, for understandable reasons, have um, built out retail media selling capabilities on a retail media ecosystem. Um, and people that are 
trying to reach the media side of a of a of a consumer products company. Um, so they're putting together real media propositions, and that's the way that they've gone after it. I think they've almost purposefully detached it a little bit from some of the joint business planning work, and I think this is particularly acute at retailers like Walmart and Target that have you know what I would call dramatically separate infrastructures for how they're how they're selling how they're selling their ads, um, and that's fine, except that. It does leave, I think, an enormous amount of potential opportunity on the table for companies to bring it together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can speak that from a retailer side. You know, retailers do well in bringing innovation and change to the marketplace when there's congruence across the different operating functions because everything moves so fast and you really, it's hard to see the unintended consequences if merchandising, marketing, this revenue departments that are being stood up separate uh, and operations aren't on the same page. And I think what happened is the ex real explosion here happened from 2019 to, you know, through 2022 at a period where there's Massive lockdown, right? And so when you're in lockdown, you might have a real good bonding and connection with your immediate team, right. but that ability to build a cross-functionally understanding and go at a pace where everybody can work through the unintended consequences together – wasn't really happening in inside of most retailers. And so I do think uh, it's possible some of the revenue components that have approached this space with retail media networks got a bit over their skis in terms of aligning. Uh, what does this mean for the JVP process? What does this mean for merchandising? How do merchants make decisions differently with the data they have versus the data suppliers going to have? You know, those are all conversations that are, I think, now starting to happen in, in at more scale, but probably weren't happening in the world of lockdown no i think uh i think given the given the fact that the outcome of hiring hundreds of people that sell media for a living that don't know how retail works uh that the outcome of that is a slight detachment between the people that sell media for a living in the retail business i would call that as more of an acceptable trade-off than an unintended outcome look I mean, you, you can't have gone into that thinking that was going to happen any other way so um so and um and i do think there are some retailers i think albertson's probably stands out here where you've got you do have some retailers that are trying to build something that might be a little bit more integrated between the merchants and the media teams um and you know but that's a different topic we'll get into a little bit later so um but this is a, a lot of back and forth here larissa that's all surrounding basically sort of the joint business plan that you would try to build with a customer as a brand today and um you know, what are some of the practical ways you see to achieve better collaboration and how does the joint business plan fit into this and how how specifically is Market Performance Group working with clients to help them sort of build out these joint business plans? So, Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great question because... Lots of. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> is provide those practical solutions, right? Because it's, it's not... This is where it's the brass tax comes. It's not about the theories and, you know, like the papers and everything, but we get calls as our clients are ready to get into JBPs and like, okay, like, what do we do? Right. We're spending a tremendous amount of money with this retailer, but we don't feel like we're getting the right performance. Right. Or it feels like a blank check. Right. How can we get more out of it? So the first thing we say is like, well, let's take a look at the whole investment, like not just the media part. Right. But like what's happening in store and how do you first take that first full view of the entire spend and start there. Number two, who's coming to the table on the other end? 
you know, make sure, you know, to the point that you were just talking about, that you have the media teams and the merchant, the retailer teams at the table. They don't always want to do that, as you know, right? They're, oh, we don't do it that way. Well, some of these clients, some of these suppliers, manufacturers are big clients. They have gravitas, right? So sometimes it's like, fill the shoes you're wearing. Like, act, you kind of kind of got to show up with some of that, you know, energy and some of that gravitas again to ask for the right people to be in the room at the table right so that we can have that strategic discussion because it can be a win-win right the, when you have the everybody has the same objective like we're trying to sell the brands are trying to sell to the consumers in a particular retailer we're entering into a joint business plan with said retailer right they can reach that consumer through retail media networks but then they have the real estate of the store Right. So how do all of those things work together? Right. You're spending so much from a media perspective. What does that look like in store? That's the other component of the practical piece It's like, what are you asking for in store? You know, we're spending 5% less or we're holding flat even. Right. That's still a significant amount of money. So how about that incremental display? Like, what about an end cap? Or what about that SKU that didn't perform last year, but we're going to invest more against it. So let's not kick it out of distribution. Like let's keep it and let's give it another six, 12 months to see how it goes. So it's those types of like those types of very, you know, practical and pragmatic examples that we try to build in and help our clients prepare for those JBPs because the key is really integration. And like you said, Andy, having those cross-functional people at the table to plan out that strategy, but then also at those meetings help because again, these spends can sit in different levels of the P&L. So making sure that the brand side and the internal manufacturer side understands the implication of the spend, you know, makes it easier if that side is aligned to then have those conversations with the retailers. Yeah. And, um, and I know, I mean, I think Larissa, you're dead right that uh, some of the retailers sometimes don't want to, don't want to have that type of conversation. I mean, they are the retail media teams are trying to generate their own revenue and their their own things, and they're incented to do one thing. The merchants are incented to do something else. Um, the retailers can be a little nervous about overlapping those. Um, you know, one of the I was just helping a retailer um, overseas get their retail media network off the ground um, a couple of weeks ago. And we did. We spent a lot of time talking about what the right way was to incent the merchants to engage in the retail media process, right? So, uh, so, um, so that the merchants don't view it as a, you know, that's Peter, I'm Paul, and you know, we're we're robbing one to pay other, um, but really making sure that the the merchandising teams are aligned to what's happening, so that these joint business planning conversations are. You don't have a you don't have an enormous amount of back and forth between the two people from the retailer side arguing with each other, which can happen in these meetings. So um. exactly, and that's actually one of the. I'm glad that you said that because that's one of the things we talk about too. Is how do you get the merchant to have some skin in the game? Yeah, how do you get the merchant to feel like they're having skin in the game without them feeling like they've been skinned? Um, so uh, so <laughs> no, nobody really enjoys that. So a lot of opportunity here, Andy. But you've also. Um, you talk a lot about the promise versus the reality of retail media, and um, there are benefits, but there are some suppliers that are hesitant to move forward. You alluded to this earlier. Um, what do you what do you think about that? The wait and see approach. How do you uh, how do how do you see that working for people? 
Well, I, I don't think that's a great strategy at all. Um, you know, I, I think there is a lot of alignment on the promise, as you say, Brian. We did um, a white paper study with the University of Arkansas talking to 30-some, you know, CPG leaders and retailers. And and to a person, they understood the promise of it and what it meant and all the value. And they could articulate that pretty well. So I don't think there's a disagreement in the promise. I think it, the, the real challenge is, you know, the current reality and where people are on the change process. Um and the worst thing, I think, in my opinion, is to is to not participate at all because innovation happens in the cracks, in disruption and in the change. And if you're not part of that conversation, you're going to be uh, – the conversations alone give you that opportunity. What I do differently, though, instead of – you've got this option of, well, I'm going to just pay and pray. I'll get returns, right? I'll pay the tax or, or the, the, whatever that check ends up being, and then I'm going to you know hope I get a great uh, result. That's not the strategy I'd propose at all. I would say, you know, you're going to – you really need to have a test and learn, you know, what am I learning – uh, what are the decisions I'm making and what are the quality of those decisions I'm making and really learn from every dime you're spending something about your business and how it could work with different brand objectives. You know, each retail media network brings us something different. How does that fit my brand total portfolio? Those are things you learn. You're not going to learn without spending. And I realize the spend is pretty high for test and learn opportunities for some brands. And that's one of the barriers that I think retailers need to adjust over time. Uh, it, this will never grow to the uh, its full potential if only the top 30 brands can participate uh, it's got to get down into the medium-sized brands. The challenge has been the complexity required to operate at that level where they you know, may not be able to afford a, a full team of SMEs on the CPG side uh, to, to engage and don't have four data scientists sitting in a room you know, working with the, with the data. Uh, it can get pretty complex and, and interesting. And I think when Facebook went through, uh, if you look back about, you know, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, you know, Facebook's revenue was coming more from enterprise, but today it's mostly SM, SMB. And I think that shift was a very intentional engineering shift to make sure that you could get ad revenue in a more easily uh, accessible way for smaller to mid-sized brands. And so for smaller to mid-sized brands, and a lot of them grew up through DTC, they're going to be, they can find tremendous value through uh, retail media networks because they understand that technology a bit better. But the price to entry might be so high that they can't form the business case to take to the CFO to say, let me prove to you why this is going to work because we've done these tests and learn and we've got these case studies. So that's an issue the retailers are going to have to find a way to lower the cost of entry so that they can prove to the finance manager this is this is a wise investment for us. Um, where if the if the current entry price is your whole budget for the year, there's not much room there to to, to try to prove the concept before you go all in. Can I build on that? Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And on the supplier side to that, having that domain expertise to know how to use the tool, right? And align on the metrics and know how to do those A-B testing, right? Number one. Number two, having the rest of the organization upskilled on the space so that that team is left alone to do the work. Because what we've also seen is sometimes, you know, you get people oversight. Well, wait a minute, we we're, we didn't align to this creator, but we didn't align to that campaign. Yet, if you align at the beginning to the overall brand strategy and the objective, then this is just kind of the playing around within the parameters that have already been set. And then the team is kind of unleashed to go and do those tests and learns and prove it up the chain. Um, so there's a couple of things in play that I think would enable that to happen because then that then that works perfectly. Yeah. 
Well, and I think too, we've talked, to, we've alluded to this a couple of times as we're going through, which is that, you know, it's not just one platform here, unfortunately, it's 30, right? So, um, so, um, you know, there's a, there's a variety, there are a variety of retail media networks. Um, and there's a variety of, um, a variety of them are doing slightly different things. Um, Andy, when you look at this, having seen this for a while, what do you, if, if you don't want to name name, but how, what does getting it right look like? And who do you think is doing an interesting job of getting some of this right? I've got my own point of view on this too, by the way, but, uh, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I think the retailers that, uh, get into the space in a thoughtful way to say, how am I going to be distinctive before they build their tech stacks and go at it? Unfortunately, there's a lot of big consulting firms that could help you get, you know, your retail media up and running quickly um, and are stamping those out. But I, I pick a Dollar General is a good example for me. Uh, I think Chad Fox, a CMO, and how they went through an exercise before they launched uh, this past year of really trying to understand what makes us different and why, you know, and, and starting with, uh, you know, how, what, what do we know about our consumer and the value proposition there? And then how, what does the conversation look like with the CMO? And how I could convince them to spend uh, money with us? What's what's going to be the barriers they have to overcome? And really understanding that value proposition to the CPG leadership uh, is they started that and they worked that out first. Then they moved into the tech building to make that work. And I think what Dollar General's built with bridge technology, getting uh, identity resolution, and they went from three percent of knowing, you know, who their consumers were to about 75, 80 percent match uh, using credit card data, first party data. They don't have a big e-commerce platform, obviously, but, but what they do have is the ability to really understand that rural audience and be able to bring that rural audience insight in a way that works through trade desk and live ramp and all those platforms to to a CPG that says yeah this is really interesting to me and so they've grown that network by focusing first on the value proposition what makes them different than just trying to go at it as I've seen a lot of retailers do which is uh, let's stand up the technology and and then start calling on suppliers to, to give us money uh, and so I, I think that's a really interesting play there done. I think 7-Eleven's taken the same kind of approach. Brian, you're kind of a Wikipedia on, re on retail. I bet you've got several examples as well where you're seeing some interesting things happen where you don't have the clout to kind of push it through. You've got to really earn it through. Uh, that's where I see some of the innovation happening. Well, and I think, I mean, the way I always look at this is kind of simple, which is that, you know, if uh, as a media network, I've got really two fundamental promises to people. I either have a really big audience or a distinctive one, right? If it's not big or distinctive, it's cheap. That's the, that's the, that's the way media basically works. Um, I think the retailers, there are some retailers, notably, you know, the large ones, Amazon, Walmart, uh, Kroger, Roundell, um, and Instacart to some degree, um, that have an advantage of just being big. So it's easier to run a retail media network if you have an inherently large audience because there's inherent value to it that you don't necessarily have to do something with. The distinctiveness piece, I think, is where somebody like DG gets interesting because they figured out a couple of things about their audience. One, it's largely an audience that accesses the internet through a mobile phone, not through, a, not through any other way. Two, obviously, it's low income. Three, more rural in profile. And now, all of a sudden, I've got an audience which is not the easiest audience in the world to reach sometimes, particularly as linear television starts to fall apart. Um, as a as a way to reach people, 
and it becomes kind of a complement to some of the things that I'm trying to do. Um, I think, look, I, I mean, if I look at the larger ones, I think they all do different things well um, and different things less well. Um, you know, I think Target's Roundell is really good at audiences. I mean, and that's, you know, that's one of the great values that Roundell brings to the table is the, the attractiveness of the target guests and the ability to link that audience to off-platform programming and all that kind of cool stuff. That's good. I think Walmart's partner, I think Walmart and Albertsons and a number of retailers who are now partnering with the trade desk to get to use their data to target audiences off-platform to measure closed-loop conversion back on-platform. That that's all. That's all really good. There's parts of the Instacart app platform that I think work really, really well. Um, and then Kroger, Kroger to me across the board is probably the most. I don't want to say the most interesting, but their capabilities because it's so rooted in their loyalty card data, and because their loyalty card data has so it represents so much of what they sell. It just allows them to do different things. I think than the other retail media networks can from a closed loop attribution perspective. From a metrics point of view, from an audience profiling point of view, there's just a lot Kroger can do that the other retailers just struggle with a little bit because the data asset they're working off of isn't quite the same. So, um, so I mean, I think they're all, but I do think they're all kind of doing, I think a lot of the larger ones are doing interesting stuff. I think to the 7-Eleven point, I think convenience stores is going to be interesting, right? Because that's such a unique usage occasion um, that it will be, uh, it'll be cool to watch how that how that unfolds, especially given that. There are some barriers, shall we say, to the C-Store ecosystem with some of the big brands and categories in that in terms of how they can advertise and whether I can set up a way for um, outbev companies, say, to reach people through some sort of retail media promise. Um, it's all kind, of, all kind of cool. So, um, so we're, um, we're going to get close to the end of our time, but we, we did get into a conversation. We opened up a conversation around data. Um, so I don't know who wants to... Uh, who wants to play the role of data nerd here for a minute? But um, what do you see companies trying to do with the data that retail media networks provide, and how are what are some of the best use cases we've seen, or what do you think some of the opportunities are? How do we see that uh, unfolding? Well, Larissa, you probably should. T you've got a closer look at this from uh, the great work you guys are doing at MPG. From from my perspective. Um, this is a goldmine of opportunity. Uh, yet it is one that um, it. Depends on the root of your company. Have you had any kind of first-party data experience as a brand? A lot of the big brands don't. And so they're just really forming a customer data, consumer data strategy. I'll put it that way because we don't confuse retailers with customers. But it means that they don't have a data strategy for first-party data that uh, really hangs together well for many. You'd be surprised perhaps. Uh, so I think just getting back and saying, what data do we want? And what do we need and what can we use uh, from their own house in order first is one of the things that's now becoming to the forefront as you have a, this access to first party data. How does that match with what it is? And like the, the Dollar General example, it's all a data play. There is no real e-commerce sales there. And so having a data strategy is a spot that um, that really needs to be looked at first, in my opinion. But I'd love to hear what you say, Laura, on this one. I, I agree. I think a lot of the larger CPGs, unless they have like a DTC brand or they have like experience doing that, that that data science piece and that consumer data management piece is relatively new to the big to the big organizations. So what we've seen is just kind of asking again some of the fundamental questions like what are we trying to accomplish? Who's the consumer target? What are we trying to what is the behavior change? 
And what is the potential data that exists that can help us unlock some of that behavior, right? And sometimes that comes in forms of capabilities, mm-hmm. right? Like we've had a lot of those types of conversations where uh, brand suppliers will say, well, we want this type of unlock and the RMN will say, well, we don't have that yet. Well, there's a perfect opportunity to work with that media network to build it together because what these manufacturers do have is tech teams they have data teams so it's about bringing the right people again to the table together and sometimes it's people you don't even know they existed in your company you know like a couple years ago it's like hey guys ecom supply chain person needs to be your best friend right now we're entering retail media it's like where's the data people where are the data scientists where are the tech people right so the the teams are changing like in a good way, right? So we're kind of like broadening it up, broadening them to bring the right subject matter experts to the table to help brainstorm these ideas. And I think for the companies that are, you know, agile enough, if you want to use that word to kind of figure out a way to make that happen without the bureaucracy, without the politics, without the, well, I don't have the capacity for this. Those that just kind of have the energy to figure it out, the potential is there. It's really exciting. Yeah. I agree, and I think the um, I think that point around the the tech teams is a re- is a really powerful one. And the way the way in which I think, and this is kind of a sort of be kind of how we land this plane here, because I think if you're looking today at being somebody in the CPG world who's trying to figure out what their career path is going to look like, and you know, I, you know, managing these large complex customers has always been to some degree. Um, the closest job you can have in your company to being the CEO without actually being the CEO, given the range of functions that fall into this responsibility. And, you know, you know, Andy, you and I talk, talked about this before. There's a reason why a lot of CEOs of CPG companies came out of running the Walmart team because running the Walmart team was a small version of running the company. So it was good practice. And, um, and I think that as these requirements from the retailers become more complex, the skills required that the team either needs to have embedded within it or have access to become more complex. And I think the skills of a leader then become more complex because you've really now, you know, I've said this a bunch of times in the last year, but I think my big takeaway from this whole analytics evolution in the, in the customer management space is increasingly now you've got more and more people that are more essential to your business. If I'm a team leader, I have no idea what they do. None. Um, you know, I, you know, you know, the likelihood that I can sit down next to somebody who's running an advanced analytics platform and you know throw my arm around their shoulder and say, ah, you know, you you got this formula wrong here, buddy. Let's uh, let's fix this and go out for a beer. Uh, that's just not the way leadership works at this point. And I think the skills of leaders. Um, are going to start to get really interesting. And Larissa, I know this is one of the things that on the market performance group side, we're really working to help clients with isn't just the, isn't just the strategy, but the underlying capabilities as well, right? 100%. And like you've said a lot of times, like we do a lot of structure work, but structure, I love it. And I quote this all the time. There's no correlation between that and success. It's the enabling factors, right? Like how, from a GM perspective, I completely agree. The GM mindset is, you know, critical, especially in this kind of omni-channel space. You got to be broad and understand enough about what your people do and be smart enough to ask the right questions and take down the barriers. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, and I also think, I'm sorry, I also think, you know, that leadership mindset, that mindset that uh, getting co-creation to, like you said earlier, Larissa, some of these are opportunities to co-create solutions that don't exist yet. And what I've found to be true time and time again is people don't kill what they co-create. And so if you go to a buyer and and rock up with, we've got this solution and it's 100 percent buttoned up and, you know, you get to a yes or no response. That's a tough that's a tough call. But if you go and say, look, you know, we're about 80 percent there, but there's some things we need to figure out. Can you help us Um, and and get that co-creation? All of a sudden with co-creation, you get commitment. And I think that it, because people want to put their hands on it and be part of solutions, that's really a mindset I think is really true. And leaders know that. Uh, so being vulnerable, stepping into those relationships and saying, hey, we don't have this all figured out yet, but can you help us and be part of that? And let's invent the future together. That's a leadership mindset that is very different than an adversarial, you know, we're in here to do battle. Yep. Uh, perfect. And I uh, can't think of really a better way to wrap up than uh, and then. Uh, and Andy, uh, obviously looking at the clock and landing the plane for us. So thank you. Um, so, uh, so, uh, yeah, I think we're about out of time here, but look, this has been a great conversation. I think, uh, I mean, I've taken away a ton from this in terms of, uh, how to think about this, both on the commercial side as well as on the media side, how we bring those things together, the importance of shared vocabulary and shared understanding, the importance of, you know, sometimes as a CPG company pushing the retailer to integrate a little bit more than they might be comfortable with, you know, um, Larissa, your phrase around filling the shoes that you're in, um, I think is a really powerful one for this. And then uh, that whole conversation around the forging the future together and people not killing what they co-create. And I think that was a really great way to, uh, to wrap us up. So, uh, hey, look, Andy, Larissa, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, hope uh, all of you have enjoyed this. And uh, we'll be back with a, uh, another podcast uh, at some point in the future on another fascinating topic. Or maybe we'll just keep talking about this. So, uh, but uh, th- thanks to both of you. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Loved it. Thank you. Take care.